Well, we're going to, uh, today's an exciting day. It's a day of, uh, it's, it's, we're going to be, it's a day of work and labor as we're going to be digging into Matthew 24. But I say it's exciting because I've been anticipating it for a while. It's a, it's a difficult passage, yet I believe it's an incredibly encouraging one when we can grab hold of it. So if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 24, I'm going to read Matthew 24 as a whole because, I, sorry, not as a whole, um, verses 1 through to verse 35. Just in case, as I, as I kind of lead us into my introduction, uh, make sure that we all know what we're talking about here and where we're going uh, with our study here. So Matthew chapter 24, um, I'll ask you to, to stand again with me for the reading of the Word of God. Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming at, at, and the, of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Thanks. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and, you will be, uh, and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be uh, increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, stand in the holy place. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for the women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders 
so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of, the, of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And with that being said, we can trust that God will bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So maybe now you can see why I was so excited. I don't know. Or at least get you on your toes for what, uh, what's to come. Uh, in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, um, but particularly those passages we read are kind of the most well-known. We come to the last of five, major, of five major discourses of Matthew's gospel. While much of the same material can be found in Mark 13 and Luke 21, Matthew's record is, is the most detailed and the, the most well-known um, of, of the three. And since Jesus spoke these words while he was on the Mount of Olives, therefore it is, it's become known as the Olivet Discourse. So, so you might hear me refer to the Olivet Discourse. Well, it's because Jesus gave this discourse on Mount Olivet, and it's very well known for that. So Christ's teaching on the Great Tribulation, of course, has, been, has long been the topic of great interest uh, to many people maybe even more so today than ever. It is not hard to see why anyone with a pulse wouldn't uh, be somewhat stirred by Christ's prophetic warning, right? When it, when it, and when it talks about there being wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and false prophets leading multitudes, uh, false Christs, and when the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Uh, th these are certainly uh, alarming circumstances um, being presented by our Lord. And our fascination by these things, of course, have also made numerous, uh, have made room for uh, numerous multi-million dollar novels and films to thrive, uh, you know, like industries surrounding these kind of ideas. As well as pastors and entire churches, to some degree, centered around these kind of end times discussions that, that have risen to fame and popularity because really these things are so 
again, there's some, there's something engaging about it. There's a there's a thrill that comes with it, that um, has has gained much popularity, and so um, so people are drawn to when people talk of these things. I also. I need to be completely clear and transparent as, we, as, as we're going to kind of, I'm going to launch us into this, uh, that throughout this study, in, ad- in addition to my own study and reading of the work of other various theologians, uh, I'm going to be relying heavily upon, and, and kind of unashamedly so, I'll explain why, uh, a very helpful and accessible framework and teaching of the book, of a book written by Ken Gentry, called The Olivet Discourse Made Easy. So, so this is a book, uh, just so you can see it, that the, uh, he's, he's put his, his work uh, on particularly those first 35 verses um, that, I, that put it together, the framework in a way that I found was, would be very helpful in a context like this. Uh, Ken Gentry is a pastor and theologian uh, from, in, who lives in South Carolina who has written many books and articles in, uh, concerning a variety of topics, but he's well known in the area of eschatology. But I found the presentation given in, in this book, um, again, I, I've read and, and I find there's very other, various other authors and I read people who disagree with me as well just to make sure I'm getting the different aspects. But he puts it, he, the way he puts it together uh, provides a, a very helpful layout for how we can unfold Christ's teaching in a way that can be followed by people here who have possibly never heard anything other than like, the most popular uh, interpretations that, that we hear today. Or perhaps some of you, I'm, and again, I'm mindful of, there's, there's kids here, maybe some of you kids, you've never heard of some of these, these ideas uh, surrounding the Great Tribulation and the, 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 these, these different aspects. And so he, he, he helps to give a framework to it, especially as we... Uh, I'm going to try to get us started because we're going to need to lay a lot of groundwork uh, before we can actually get into going passage by passage, which is, that's what I do. I go passage by passage. So when I'm not doing that, I I find myself, I don't know where to go. So, so that's where I'm, I'm drawing a lot from that, from that book to, to provide um, some direction and, and outline for, for us. Uh, Matthew Henry makes the helpful observation here. I mean, uh, well, before I read him, actually, again, I just want to highlight that uh, interpreting ancient prophetic literature as it was intended to be understood and applied today requires a maturity and knowledge of the Scriptures, which is often not only obtained by diligent study of Scripture, but also by the, I find... In a lot of these matters, it's obtained by the passing of time, the time of having these things in our hearts and minds to marinate in our lives and to meditate on um, that doesn't, that can't just come straight from a textbook. Um, And so, and it's needed so that we're able to kind of step back from the immediate details and surrounding brush of the forest, right? If you think of yourself walking through a forest and all the, I mean, it doesn't matter who you are, what age, what, what maturity you are. Um, there, there's so much you can learn and pick and observe as you look at the things around you. But to be able to kind of step back from that 
and take the bird's eye view, right? And to, to, to get your, your head out of the forest and to look, at, look down at the, the path and the different turns and winding and ultimately where it's all leading. Um, that requires a degree of, again, maturity and work that uh, I, it's not, it's hard to come by. And, uh, and again, uh, so, and Matthew Henry here on this comments, uh, he says, the church has always had particular prophecies besides general promises, both for direction and for encouragement to believers. But it is observable that Christ preached this prophetic sermon in the close of his ministry. He's making a note of even the placement of this difficult passage, that he places it where it, he does in Matthew 24. Just as the, the Apocalypse, or Revelation, is the last book of the New Testament, he notes, and the prophetic books of the Old Testament are placed last, to show to us that we must be well grounded in the plain truths and the plain duties that God gives us that must first be well digested before we dive into the things that are dark and difficult. Many run themselves into confusion by beginning their Bible at the wrong end, he says. And so that's where, again, I, as I was preparing for this portion of Matthew, I just, I just had to kind of just lay all my cards out on the table uh, and, and confess that after almost 20 years as a Christian and almost 15 years as a full-time student of God's Word, I quickly realized my immaturity in these matters. Uh, while trying to balance that with my calling and re my responsibility by God and by you to be your pastor and to shepherd you, and the sufficiency of God's grace in me being able to, to faithfully guide you through these things. So I believe this ought to be, uh, using, using a, a framework like this, ought to be the exception to the rule of pastors in their preaching ministry. But again, given the season, given my, where I, my ability where my, in my study, um, my desire for you to grow together with me in this. Right? As we've been going through Matthew, and now we, we enter Matthew 24, my desire for you to grow with me in the same way that I myself have been blessed by the work and ministry of other faithful men as I've studied these matters. I've decided to use uh, Gentry's book in particular and how we work through this chapter together. So far as I've, I've found it faithful to the text of Scripture and as I believe, it, and so far as it will be helpful uh, in you understanding and applying the Lord's message to his disciples both then and, and to us today. So that's, that's what I'll be doing, uh, especially for these initial sermons, as I said, that are less focused on a single text. And, and instead, we'll be, we're going to begin with a much broader focus on the surrounding passages and context of Matthew. So, so again, this is a, an odd, this is, this is a unique Sunday for all of us in terms of what we'll be doing. Uh, I won't make it run on too long. We're gonna, it's going to be a few weeks of kind of just laying the groundwork. Um, but I guess like anything that is worth working for in life, I'm just asking you to trust me. <laughs> Laying this foundation will, will pay off uh, as we, once we actually get into the text of Matthew 24.
Um, I'm doing, I, I trust that this foundation will, be, uh, will serve as a blessing to us as we get into the text. As I mentioned, uh, part of my taking care not to rush through this passage and taking for granted that everyone is just going to follow along well enough as you kind of have been to this point as we go through Matthew, it's, uh, is that it is important to be aware that in the recent history of the church, the dominant popular interpretation of the Olivet Discourse today uh, varies widely from the interpretation I'm going to be giving to you. And I'm going to touch on that and, and uh, the different interpretation at different points. Um, but it is different. So the, the common, and, it, and it's, it's it, we've, we've gone over these words before, but the common dispensational uh, framework, not necessarily premillennial. Again, we've done our eschatology Sunday school, so for those of you who are trying to remember those categories, um, I, as I was studying Spurgeon, who is a, he's a pre-mill guy, I realized uh, that he's never, he's never heard of many of what, what was taught, is taught today in regards to the Great Tribulation. And so I've kind of concluded that this is much of the popular view of the, tri the, the expectation of the tri Great Tribulation coming in our future uh, is the fruit of d dispensational theology, which is kind of the past 100, uh, 100 150 years um, in, in the making. Uh, so, so the popular view is that Jesus is referring in, these, in Matthew 24 entirely to events in the distant future which are to occur at the very end of the church age. Okay, whereas I am going to, to eventually argue from Scripture and events in history that he is first speaking of events in the lifetime of his original audience at the end of the Old Covenant age um, from verses 4 to 34. That, that, that those verses 4 to 34, and, and that's not to say that there's, there's not going to be in that uh, relevance and application to the God's judgment at, uh, when, he come, when Christ returns, but that primarily speaking, those verses um, are aimed at its fulfillments within the lifetime of, of his hearers. Again, that's not the popular view. Popular view is all of this is in our future. Popular view will say that Jesus is prophesying events regarding the future tribulation era, uh, temple. Whereas I will see that he is actually prophesying the destruction of the first century temple and the permanent removal of the sacrificial system. It's, again, it's commonly held that Jesus is speaking of catastrophes befalling uh, the world, non-Jews who persecuted the Jews. Whereas, again, in those first verses, we'll see that it is actually focusing on disasters that over, were overwhelming the Jews for rejecting the Messiah. And then last, uh, many believe Jesus is declaring judgments overwhelming the entire world. Whereas the focus of these judgments are being specifically applied to Judea in the land of Israel. And again, specifically verses uh, 4 to 34 in that regard. So again, I, 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 I out, kind of put that out there to, to make it clear that we have, there are two opposed 
uh, and irreconcilable views being proposed here and, and that are represented among us here. Not everybody is going to be in agreement with me uh, in this. Irreconcilable in terms of its meaning for us today. But to be clear, I'm not suggesting these differences need divide us or be irreconcilable in our fellowship and our local ministry and worship together in Christ. So I'm going to be faithful as I can to the text while being mindful that not everyone is going to be agreeing at certain points in this. And while our differing views over the fulfillment of this chapter will certainly either weaken or strengthen our ability and readiness to apply its message, and therefore I believe it's worth contending for and love for one another, so long as we all remain in the same vine, the Lord Jesus Christ, then I can trust that its intended application or its intended fruit will blossom in his time, proving to be profitable for teaching, for correction, and for uh, uh, reproof that we, that we would be made complete, equipped for every good work together here. And so for that reason, I'm going to be very intentional uh, also, to make these messages available to, to you, all of you, to listen to online. So, uh, so this is being recorded. Sometimes messages are recorded, sometimes they're not, and I'm, I'm kind of hit and miss. So I'm saying uh, we're going to be very intentional to make sure uh, that these messages are recorded. And, and even some of you, if you need, feel free. I could give you my manuscript if you want, like, the specific uh, references. Um, if, if, in case you feel like you missed something during the service or uh, if you're not able to join us one Sunday. Because it's going to be, uh, as the study, as I talk about it unfolding, that's what it will be doing. It will be unfolding. So to miss one message could be not helpful or maybe even confusing to, to you following along in the next one. So with that being said, even if you do not come to share my interpretation as we work through this prophetic teaching together, my intention and prayer for all of you is that we would all grow together in our love and delight in Christ, and more specifically, to love His coming. Now that I've built up that massive anticipation and preparation for our, our study of Matthew 24 here, I'm going to throw a, a bucket of ice water on you and, and call our attention back to Matthew chapter 1. Okay? So before we jump into, into chapter 24, it is imperative that we review the flow and themes of Matthew's gospel account leading up to this point. This teaching does not appear as it does in Matthew's arrangement in, in chapter 24 as just some random off-the-cuff kind of timing uh, by chance. But I intend to show you that over the next few weeks that the Olivet Discourse is not only anticipated throughout Matthew, but that Matthew has arranged the content and flow of his entire presentation in order to prepare the reader for this prophetic discourse, 
which then sets the scene or in the stage for the crucifixion the short, to follow shortly after. So it's important to understand that the Gospels are not modern biographical literature. They're not modern biographical literature. So what I mean by that is, although it has biographical characteristics, the Gospels uh, have come to be understood as, as being unique as a genre in themselves. Um, and, and that they're not, they're, um, well, not, not what they are not, what they are is they're very selective. They're, they're also very theologically structured. They're redemptively aimed and they're situationally informed um, presentations of the life of Christ. So, so by selective, that I, what I mean is that in the, in the entire 33 years of Christ's life, it only focus, if you think of the whole Gospel of Matthew, it focuses primarily on three and a half years of his life and ministry. So that's, I mean, that's not your typical bio, if, if, if you know what I mean by a biography the, and it being chronologically followed, right? You're supposed to be following the whole life and diff, different points. Well, it's very selective at, at what it aims. And even then, it narrows in on three and a half years, but there's a huge chunk that's uh, designated to the last week of Christ's life leading up to the, to the cross. Um, so it's very selective. The Gospels are also theological in that they clearly are designed to show. Like there's, um, there, there's, there's always this motive being shown that, that God has sent Christ to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies in order to save men from their sins. And, and we see this especially in Matthew, which opens in chapter 1 with the genealogy of Christ from Abraham to King David and through to Christ. And then you have an angel of the Lord saying to Joseph in verse 21 that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So it's very theological. He, he has a, um, he, he's been, he's not just reporting facts, but he's, he's developing a theology to, to feed his audience. Beyond that, the aim of the authors are clear, clearly to encourage faith and, committed to, and commitment to Christ as the savior of sinners. It, it's very biased. I mean, he's, he's trying to persuade you and convince you that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Savior of sinners. And then last, the Gospels are situational and that they arise out of specific historical situations surrounding the apostles and the times when they write them, which, which does, not, does not limit their relevance to those circumstances alone as if it could only speak to them at that time. But it, uh, it, um, but it does provide a limiting lens through which its message and application needs to be interpreted and rightly understood for us today. And so all of the, gospel, of all the Gospels, Matthew is especially noted for its obvious theological structure in contrast to, the, to a more unbiased, chronologically based biography that you would expect uh, to be written today. 
And because of this, we have studied Matthew together now for three years. Some of you, if you've been with me from the very beginning, we've been in Matthew for three years. And I've been pointing out all along the way the redemptive historical significance of Israel's judgment that is, is coming in 70 AD here. Uh, theologian R.T. France comments here, he says, we hear repeatedly Jesus' condemnation. We've heard as we've gone through his condemnation of, quote, this generation. We've seen it in, in uh, chapter 11, 16, in chapter 12, 38 to 45, in chapter 16, verse 4, in chapter 17, verse 17. And it all culminating in the clear warning as, we, as we've come up through chapters 21, 22, 23 of the clear warning that now the rebellion of Israel has crossed a line and that the time for judgment has come. That's what we just, we took a bit of a break studying, going through Deuteronomy 6, um, but we just ended in, in chapter 23 um, with, with that last line that the blood of all the prophets would be, would be falling on their heads. And so today, in order to, to prepare us to receive the Olivet Discourse, and we're today, and as I said, we're, we're not going to have much more time left, but in the next few weeks, we're going to briefly sur survey what we have studied in Matthew now uh, for three years to, to help show you. I mean, that's a long time ago. Maybe you don't remember Matthew 1, 2, and 3, and whatnot. And again, some of you haven't even been with, uh, been with us for that whole time. So we're going to be surveying that, the, these different themes. And I want you to see that it is consistent with what we have been studying and learning from Matthew all the way along. That's what, that's what our goal is, is that we're going to study it as, and, and seek to be consistent with it, just as we have been up until now, that we would study this and, and understand this passage in light of all of, of what has come before and what is coming after. So we, we come to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Right from the opening of Matthew, begins by tracing Jesus' genealogy to Abraham, who was considered the father of the Jews. And he structures the genealogy in a dramatic and rhetorically significant way which he summarizes in verse 17 there for us. I mean, he says it, he outlines it in the first verse, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we, so we have those three segments. And in verse 17, he, he concludes, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the de deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, uh, uh, sorry, from, that's, I need to look at my actual text here. I, I, put, I printed that wrong. And from the de deportation to Babylon, uh, from uh, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. As a commentator, Robert Mounts, observes here, Matthew intentionally ar arranges the names from Abraham to David 
to Christ in groups of 14 to coincide with the three important stages of Jewish history. So, so first you have the count, account of God's people leading up to the greatest king of Israel, David. And then you have the decline of the nation from David down to the exile to Babylon. And then from there you have the restoration of God's people in the advent of the Messiah. And so in this, his opening presentation, Matthew highlights Israel's lost glory in her decline from David to, to exile, then presents Christ as the new king, as, as, as the hope, as the light piercing into the darkness at this point in history. And the first verse, again, couldn't get any clearer. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Yet we'll see as we survey Matthew how ultimately she obstinately rejects him. Resulting in the dramatic transformation of the people of God in the calling of the Gentiles under the new king, under Jesus Christ. Which Paul's going to later explain in Ephesians 2.16 how Jesus has created in himself one new man in the place of the two. That's Ephesians 2.16. He creates one new man in the place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile, in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So running throughout the background of Matthew is God's case for his just and faithful judgment and desolation of national Israel according to the flesh in Abraham, which in the fullness of time has given way to the one new man, the one new race, one people for his own possession in the place of the two through faith in Jesus Christ. So we must understand that the early church comprised primarily of believing Jews did not see themselves as a new religion, as if it was Judaism and then Christianity, but as a true manifestation of Judaism as was foretold by the prophets and fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. Uh, this was for them, again, for the, the, the believing Jews, uh, the, the early church, this was not some, they were not a sect of Judaism as the, Jew, as the, the unbelieving Jews would, would call them. But the fulfillment of all that was, had led up to that point. And so, and we look at Matthew 2. In Matthew 2, verse 3, we have men coming from the east to worship Jesus. Okay, so you see that right away. We have men coming from the east to worship Jesus while all Jerusalem, which was the, really the center of economic and religious life of Israel, it says all of Jerusalem was troubled at the news of the coming of the Christ. And so we have Herod, the king of the Jews, who was not a true Jew himself, seeking to devour the infant Jesus, who was a true Jew, as, as Matthew's shown, and the rightful heir to the throne. 
set against these, uh, we have that setting of King Herod, the, the kind of false Jew, Jewish king, seeking to devour Jesus, set against these Gentile wise men who are seeking to pay homage to this newborn king. And this is followed by reenactments then in, in Matthew 2 of Israel's history in a way with Mary and Joseph fleeing to Egypt, if you recall that in the Old Testament. And then her deliverance and return back to the promised land in which Jesus will be shown in Matthew to be the true and faithful Israel. So from the outset, we have Jerusalem being portrayed in an unfaithful light. And we're going we're gonna to note that as we go through Matthew. Whenever Jerusalem comes up, it, it means trouble in Matthew's Gospel. Which will only develop as, as we move on. In contrast to, we're going to also see, kind of being put in here along the way, a general acceptance of the Gentiles who, who humbly approach Christ. Matthew 3, and we'll, we'll leave it at Matthew 3 for our survey today. In, in, in ch Matthew chapter 3, it introduces us to Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, who was sent to introduce the Messiah to Israel. And the first words we hear out of John's mouth is his preaching in verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And these are also... By the way, Christ's first words recorded in chapter 4. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We, it's immediately confronting the sin of Israel and the need of repentance in order to prepare for the coming of the kingdom of heaven. The message, and note, the message was not repent so that the kingdom of heaven can come. Right? Repent. Because if you don't, too bad. No, the, the, the warning, the, the dire, the power in that message is saying, repent because the kingdom of God is coming. In other words, if you don't repent, if you don't get out of the way, you're going to get flattened in the process. So repent. God is not willing that any should perish, but that you turn from your wicked ways and that you live. The kingdom of God has come. It's at hand. In chapter 3, 7, John says, it says that John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, and he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So later in, and later in Matthew 21, we discover that Jesus does not, uh, uh, sorry, that Israel does not bring forth the fruit of repentance. As Jesus enacts his prophetic curse upon fruitless Israel, Israel with the cursing of the fig tree. In Matthew 21, 19, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the, and the fig tree wither at once. And then later in that chapter, chapter 21, in the parable of the unfaithful tenants, 
Jesus concludes in verse 43. He says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Crush him. And the stone is, of course, Christ. So back in, in our chapter 3, in verse 9 to 12, John anticipates this rejection where he rebukes Israel's leaders for their boast that Abraham is their father. Right? He says, Do not presume, verse 9, to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He contrasts their claim to Abrahamic descent in the flesh with their hardened hearts and their satanic fruits that they've produced, concluding that it is more likely for stones to be incorporated into the people of God. By recording this statement, Matthew is preparing the way for what uh, commentators like R.T. France describes as, a, as what would be a radical rethinking of what it means to be the people of God. Right? And we can't even really imagine. We call ourselves as the church. We call ourselves the people of God all the time. Uh, we cannot imagine the category of a people of God that is not connected or tied to, me, to, to a Jew, to, to, to Israel and to the nation as being the people of God. To, to, to expand out of that required a, a, really their world being turned upside down which is what Matthew 24 sounds a lot like. Uh, later in chapter 8, upon observing the faith of the Roman centurion, in chapter 8:10, Jesus marveled, and he said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. And so John warned in verse 10. He says, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. That, that adverb, even now, or some translations say already, is paired with the present tense, Laid, which is to say that it's being, it's, it's being laid in the present, uh, marking it out for judgment, right? It's what you do when you're, when you're chopping something with an axe. What do you do with it first? You, you set it where you're, where you're about to strike. And he's saying the axe is being laid at the root of the tree. Yet the full force of that, of that final swing has not yet come down. And hence his message, repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
And so what we have been, what we have being revealed here is both the immediacy and certainty of the coming judgment upon the hearer who does not repent and embrace the Messiah. And further, the fact that the axe is laid where here? Where's the axe laid? Notice it's at the root. It powerfully teaches that the coming judgment that he's talking about will not be a mere pruning as it had been in the past. And as we sang in Psalms, as God disciplines his people and they face judgment and correction and they cry out to him and they're delivered and then they rebel again and, and, and they cry out to him and they're delivered. It's not a mere pruning being presented here, but it's, it's being struck down at the root, indicating a permanence of the pending judgment. And all of this is a clear image of divine judgment drawn from the, uh, and, and there's prophetic texts. I mean, Isaiah 10 um, is one that sounds very familiar. Isaiah 10, verse 15, he says, Shall the axe boast over him who hews it with it, or the saw magnify it him, against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. And, and there's many other examples where the same idea of the axe being cut, laid to cut down the tree or the forest um, is a reference to God's judgment upon a people. And then lastly, as we kind of wrap this up just for, for now, uh, shifting metaphors, John confirms this by declaring in verse 12 that the one who is coming at, who is after him, who is mightier than he, has a winnowing fork in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Okay, so it's, it's speaking of the permanence of the judgment that is to come to the one who does not repent. The main thrust, as we see, of the ministry and message of the one who was sent to prepare the way for this Messiah, for the Lord's coming, was one of the imminent and unalterable judgment of God upon all who refused to bow the knee to the coming of their king. So we'll hit pause now for today in our study of Matthew's Gospel. And while there is still quite a bit of foundational work to get through in this next week or two, uh, today's sermon was probably the most uh, dense in terms of its kind of just foundational content. And, and so because we've done that, I, I, I believe we'll be able to kind of pick up the pace next week as we continue our survey uh, through Matthew tilling the soil of our hearts 
to hear Christ's famous discourse that he gave to his disciples on Mount Olivet and what he wants to say to us today, to his church, to his bride. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you, and as we see through Matthew, you are a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That you are a God who warns. That you are a God who, who has revealed your justice and your righteousness. Um, many people, they hear of this, these things and they, they think of you as this uh, I, just this, that, that's all they think of is the aspect of judgment and anger and wrath. And yet when you compare it to all the gods, even the, and many of the false gods and idols of the world today, their gods can never be satisfied. Their God, and their justice is always changing. It's always shifting. We don't, uh, what's right today might be wrong tomorrow. And yet you've revealed your will and made your justice known. And yet, Lord, we all, we must confess. Just as with the Israelite, that we've all fallen short of your glory. That we've all broken your commands. That in our own righteousness and in our own merits, there is nothing we can do to cleanse ourselves and to be reconciled to you. And yet we pray that, as, I pray as we go through this study in Matthew and we reflect upon Christ's coming and all that it meant, God, that it would cause us to rejoice uh, and, and to love his salvation, what he, is, what he came and what he's done for us. And again, as I said earlier in this message, Lord, I pray that you would kindle in us a love for his coming. And all that that means, again, what that has meant throughout the history of the church and what that means for us today as the church. Lord, we need, um, we need your help with that. God, give us the, uh, just the ability to retain these things and to remember it and to understand them and guide us as we seek to apply uh, all that it means for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.